Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. We're enjoying the fall. I am very sore still from the running race, uh, which you won the challenge because I didn't start the 75K, but you dominated the race. So kudos. I feel like that was like a veiled, like, but if I had. Well, no, I couldn't start. So I, I think that. I think I lost before it began, but you did great in the 25. That's right. We had, so we had a local, what was this? The North of 89 and 89 put on this race. It was called the Cremore vertical challenge. There was three laps. If you, if you were brave enough to take it on. So 25 kilometers, approximately 27 and a half kilometers uh, per exactly. lap. So I took on the 25, which was fantastic. Great distance. I was in quite a bit of pain from the descending of the verticalness or, you know, the, the vert, the vert coming down was where it ruined the, downhill vert. the cycling frame and body. And then you dominated and you're still a little sore. So you're taking, I wanted to point this out because a lot of people ask how long do you take off, but you're taking pretty much this week off of running after this. Yeah. And this is sort of a bit of a combination, like end of, like end of season slash like races over kind of thing. So it's, oh, okay. it's partially like a recover from the race, but it is partially like, this is the end of my season. And now we sort of start like a new build phase. So. Right. Right. And I always say that I didn't say this, someone else said this, but the, the idea that you if you peak you want to step off the peak you don't want to fall off the peak mm -hmm. which maybe describes my running race a little bit as well as i fell down the mountain um, second overall i did very competitive i did okay so you did great yeah so in any case that was a fun end and then yeah we're taking a little bit of time we did went to visit some friends we had a, a 40th birthday which is apt for not for me not yet but for a friend who's just i mean it's literally like days <laughs> coming this, this is related to today's podcast as well podcast guest but we visited some friends did a couple more bike skill sessions as the weather winds down, fit these in. And then we also had a Durham Shredders youth group. We did a big cyclocross and very quick. We did an hour of power sort of, you know, cyclocross session, lots of skills. So that was very fun last night. So we're back home after yeah. a whirlwind trip, but very rich and fulfilling of the cup, but still very sore. The muscles are sore from downhill running. Say, I'm actually good today. Like yeah. today, the first day I woke up and I was like, oh, okay. Like I can, I have my walking fine, my yoga and strength and stuff. Okay. This morning. And I'm that's, totally that's fine. Wednesday from a, a Saturday race or Sunday, Saturday, Saturday race, race Saturday. So we're, we are days out there, but yeah, yeah we, I had a few friends. So a few friends did the 10 K here on Sunday. We had a 10 K road running race. We didn't do this, but friends did it. And then also a, a few friends who did and clients who did the same vertical challenge. And so we, we had a few messages of and videos of people walking downstairs very tenderly and and just like waking up and being like, is it supposed to be like this? And so, yes, that's running. I'm actually really glad that some people caught it on video because I think it's like a good reminder to yourself the next time you try to sign up for something that like you maybe aren't necessarily like fully prepared for. It's not to say you shouldn't do it. Just that like, here's the consequence. Right. So I think that is good. Oh yeah. And last week, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me hold up the book. My new book, The Strong Girl came out yes. with my company, Congrats. Strong Girl Publishing. Congrats. Yeah. So that's been super exciting. Yeah. So you can get this on Kindle. On Kindle, on wherever yeah. books are yeah. sold. Yeah, obviously in real copy, copy too. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is perfect. Anyone who is a, a big Shred Girls fan, this would be a next logical step as well. Yeah. And this one's a bit more multi-sport. So if you have a kid who's maybe not as like convinced about cycling, but 
you know, is into just really any kind of movement. This book kind of sneaks in a lot of like weightlifting and strength training stuff, but it's very much focused on like 1870s circus life. Uh, so very, very different from my, my normal, cool. but I'm really excited about it. So that's been a really fun week with that. Okay. Yeah. And I think we, we need to get into today's guest. I think we can talk forever about our race and maybe we will talk a little bit about like the post-race stuff in the next Q&A. But for now, let's talk Phil Cavell here. So. That's right. So Phil is the CEO of Cycle Fit. This is a UK bike fitting studio. There's actually two and we get a tour for the YouTube viewers. We'll try and get that that brief tour that Phil gave me at the beginning of our, our interview, at the beginning of our talk. But he has a great book out. The Midlife Cyclist, Thank which you. is a very like slightly terrifying title. Uh, well, I mean, it's playing, I guess, on this midlife crisis, but you're a midlife cyclist. And so it's for the 40 plus, but I think the 30s, the 20s, it's relevant, but it goes all the way up, you know, 60s, 70s. And really the main, you know, what do we say, call this the, like the ethos of the book? Yeah. Yeah. Is that you know, our bodies are not used to, we're the first generation that's really pushing the limit of of what our bodies, what our hearts especially can do. Specifically as sort of amateur recreational cyclists. Well, or pro, like there was no time in really the world where, you know, a 70 year old would be out trying to set like an hour record on their bicycle and just pushing their heart rate to maximal for for extended periods of time, let alone in the training to do such an effort. So it's really Phil's begging the question of like, what does this mean? And what are the upsides and the downsides? There's obviously lots of upsides as far as being healthy and moving into older age. But what are the, you know, there's, are there downsides? And that's really the, the question that he explores throughout this book. And, and there's a great chapter on bike fitting that if you like you have, you, you want to almost bookmark this, or if it's on the, we did the audio version book, which was just great to listen to Phil's voice coming from the UK. It's always nice that we love accents here. The bike fitting chapter was just amazing. Like if you had a, a problem, like he talks through a lot of the common ones and common things you could try before going and getting a bike fit. But then there's lots of chapters around cardiovascular health and different elements of health, things like strength training we discuss as well in this interview. Yeah. And I think we should be able to include a link in the show notes. I think the article went up yesterday. I actually interviewed him separately for an article for bicycling magazine about sort of some of these common fit issues. So if you have neck pain, what sort of the couple things that you would try to do with your bike fit? So if you want like a bit of a taste of it, a sampler, if you will, before you commit to the book, definitely check that article out and we'll try to include a link to that in the show notes. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Phil Cabell. Enjoy. How do you start and progress to this multi-fit studio status you're at now? So Jules and I were both racing the same team. We raced everything, road, mountain bike, cyclocross, and going back early 90s. And we both got hurt, both got injured. And there wasn't much known about, you know, doctors could kind of fix the injury, but they couldn't, they couldn't really help you beyond what possibly the underlying issue was. So we became very interested in bike fit. We became very interested in anatomy. So we just kept searching around for what the solutions were. We went and we met Ben Sorotta, who was also very interested in the subject and was running a school. We went through his school. We met Paul Swift in the US. And then we brought Paul Swift over to the UK. This is going over 20 years ago, now, 20, early, late 90s, early 2000. Paul came over. We worked on foot control. That wasn't enough. So we then started to develop a, a more of our own system based on people we were meeting. Mick Habgood, our podiatrist, was somebody we met a long time ago, almost 20 years ago, started to work with Mick. He was a, a like a fixed foot specialist podiatrist, so great in the ski industry and transfer into the cycle industry. And so we just kind of 
gathered these people around us who could help us think through these issues. And the dream was always to bring everyone together in this facility. And over the years, we've managed to do that. It's taken us over 20 years to kind of get the space, get the people, get the tools, design the building internally. This is an old fire station. So we've had to, you know, it's, there's no pole here anymore. So, okay. you know, it, yeah. So, so it's been, it's been a long process of just, you know, constantly evolving the methodology, the technology, brain trust. And, you know, we're, we're with the same people pretty much. And then we'll, new people join us. And w what's great, what's best is, the, is how we all work together. So we have a particularly sticky problem. Then we'll bring in some, sometimes there'll be maybe me, myself, you know, myself and Julian, and then Nicola, our physio and our podiatrist, and maybe a sports physician. And so you're bringing in, you're concentrating all the assets that you need into a focused session. And over that half hour, 45 minutes, you know, someone's going to have ownership of what they think the underlying cause is, hunting the criminal. What's, what's really driving all this? What's This person's been having this issue for many years, maybe. And what really is, why? Why do they get this over and over again? They get it, it gets fixed, and then they get it again. Mm -hmm. And so we're always looking for that underlying issue, the, the thing that's driving everything. And sometimes you can't do it on your own. Sometimes you just need to bring in other assets. So we have them here, you know, so Mick, the podiatrist, we, we run clinics with him all the time and they're always absolutely jammed because people understand that if you don't get the foot sorted first, it's everything else really is a problem secondary. Well, that's interesting. Um, so would you say like, was the podiatrist one of the first people you added in addition to like your, your, you know, the bike fitter or yourself, I guess, in this case? Yeah, it was it was because when we worked with Ben and, and Paul Swift, who invented the whole wedge system, and you know, we could see that it 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 switched us on to what we didn't know. And what we didn't know was how we how we fix the foot. Hmm. You know, we had an idea of what we needed to do, but we just didn't we couldn't we didn't know how to do it. So meeting Mick, the podiatrist, and there's not many most all podiatrists know about walking and running. You know, they know how to mobilize the foot and utilize the foot in walking and running. But very few podiatrists understand you know, what the, 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 the function of the foot in cycling and how it differs to walking and running. There's a guy called Bill, Bill Peterson, who is a podorthist. He's, he's unfortunately died, but Bill was also a visionary in this. He wasn't a podiatrist. He was called a podorthist. I don't know what the difference is. So Bill was quite a visionary in this as well, understanding the difference between the foot. Sorry. And I was going to say that, that, that some of the issue, I guess, is that like, because the it's fixed to the pedal at, you know, the, the forefoot, but then the heel isn't involved as much, you know, or at all uh, versus walking, yeah. right? Which is what most podorthists or podiatrists would deal with. Is that, is that sort of the central issue or? Yeah. Or, yeah. So do you ski at all? For sure. Yeah. We're in Canada. So you sort of have to do all these things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in skiing, in skiing, you're looking for the similar principle. You're looking to the, the last thing you need with your when you're skiing is you don't you need the foot to be fixed in its mo in its best position. If it's not fixed in its be best position, you can't find the edge because your foot's moving to try and find the edge. In which case, by which time it's too late. So with cycling, so with walking and running, it's all about facilitating the right kind of movement. In cycling, it's all about locking the foot in and mo and laterally locking the foot in. So it, you need to actually lock the foot in the shoe, in the pedal, 
not with that, I mean, you can have float, but you want to lock the foot in that direction. So there's no movement this way. I see. And that's different. Yeah. So, and that's, that's different. That's a different principle. Now, skiing is very big on like the heat molded insoles. We have a, a spot here in, we're in a ski town in, in just north of Toronto and in, in Canada. Then there's at least one, but I was sure most of the ski shops do this. Now, is your view with cycling that should we be using like a, a custom insole or, or like always having, you know, is there any sort of trend there or is it very much, it depends, you know, on the person and the foot? I think, yeah, I think we do, we do moldable insoles here, which have come from the ski industry and we have our own kind of blank here that we use. And for some people, they're great, but for some people, what that, what that moldable footbed won't do is it won't correct what's going on at the forefoot in that, in terms of that lateral movement. And those people need, they, they need a full carbon fiber orthotic which absolutely stabilizes and locks the foot. So all the pro athletes, we all the pro cyclists we work with pretty much have a, will have an orthotic in. Would you say, um, like, is there a situation like, would it, like, I'm just trying to get like sort of interesting. I, this is uh, diversion, but this is good. Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's okay. I mean, it's all cycling stuff. We're all, we like to geek out on this. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is like, would someone ever use the stock shoe insole or, or lack thereof that comes in their shoe? Or, or are you always putting in like one of these aftermarket insoles? We typically would not use the the stock insole. For some people, for some foot types, the stock insole will be fine. So it was called a rectus foot type. So the foot is like a tripod of support. The foot's pretty got really good structure, a pretty good pretty good arch, and you've got three points of contact. You've got the mm. first metatarsal, fifth met, and then you've got on the heel, you've got this tripod of support, and the foot's quite stiff and sta- you know, quite stable. Mm-hmm. They're probably fine. They might find they're fine with it. A stock insole. We generally don't stop there, and we would try and try and put something into the shoe. But some people are fine with that, and then some people are plagued by foot issues, and they just need to have the foot locked in and locked down. And you know that's the only way to resolve their issues. So we try and bring in the in the in the site in the fit the bike fit you were looking at. Well, Jules was doing one, and Jimmy was doing something with a foot. I'm assuming he's going to mold a footbed. But the, everyone's trained to assess the foot and say, okay, I can work with this. No, I can't work with this. And it's that kind of, that's that decision. And if you don't know, then you bring in Mick and you say, Mick, I'm kind of thinking this person needs an orthotic. And he'll say, no, I think you're fine with it. Or no, no, he definitely needs an or she needs an orthotic. Mm-hmm. And over the, over the years we work together, we all kind of know. And so most of the time we can make those decisions, but we're never shy to bring each other in it's just it's a feature here you're in everyone's encouraged bring somebody in you know don't don't struggle on your own ask even at George's level who's our kind of lead fitter if you like mm. you know even his level, you know, he'll bring somebody in he brings me in he brings Jimmy in Nicolo the physio or especially make the podiatrist mm. so yeah that, that's how we work um now we're going to go into a bunch of this fitting stuff, but I want to not get too deep into this here before we mention that you, not just a bike fitting or, or one of our clients, one of our listeners recommended you and your your book, The Midlife Cyclist, which just came out in 2022. You know, they described you at 21 as a cycling biomechanics guru and, and a cycling geek. And so that's how they described you. And they said, we had to have you on the show. So here you are. But this book is not just about bike fitting. It's It's indeed into like, this whole central, you know, I guess the joke of the title, the midlife cyclist, the midlife crisis that we all experience as we get older. And so I'm curious, how does a bike fitting guru go into this whole world of heart health and intensity and what does it mean and food and all these, how how did you get to this, this 
point? Why didn't you write a bike fitting manual? Yeah, yeah. So th th those are specific questions. Firstly, the good bike fit guru thing didn't come from me. That comes from your publisher writer stuff. You don't, you don't really get control over this. They kind of, you know. So I, I would never have described myself as a bike fit guru, and don't, you know. Um, so I, I don't consider myself to be a, a bike fit guru. It's just I'm immersed in the world of bike fitting. And I will say, um, this was a listener who described you. It might have been taken from that, but uh, I, yeah, uh, this is this is a fan. A fan is describing you as their bike fitting guru. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to dis sorry to disabuse him of that. I'm not, you know, I I'm not really not Peter. I mean, I'm I'm not the best bike fitter in this building, you know. Not that you can, not that it's easy to assess us. I'm probably very good for some clients and not, you know. So sure. I'm not a bike fit guru, and even Jules wouldn't describe himself as a bike fit guru. But you know, he'd turn he would turn he turn very pale if you were described him as that and start to pass out. It's about the fact that we all work together and we're all trying to achieve something unique and for every client that we interface with and so, so in leading into that second part of that question and maybe maybe blues we didn't describe these bike figure they did mention bike somewhere but mm. the point being that because this environment we're seeing a whole kaleidoscope of clients from people who are just starting out to people who are you know at their peak and professionals and work you know and riding for you know pro tour teams and you know winning tour de france stages and then on the other side they're pros who are on the other side of that journey and they're you know they're getting to the end of their career and you know and things are hurting and not working so well and then also obviously we're seeing you know amateur clients and older older guys and women who are getting into the sport and trying to achieve you know quite you know quite um, extraordinary things so we're seeing this kaleidoscope of cycling ability and we're, i'm working with these extraordinary people you know and so my perspective, I had a unique opportunity and unique insight on the one side, what people, what people was going wrong for people. And then on the other side, what assets we could collectively bring together um, to make their journey easier. And the people that I work with all the time in here, I mean, many of them are characters in the book. They come in and out of the book the whole time. And so it, I didn't just find them, most of them for the book. They're people that I work with all the time, like trust, enjoy their company, you know, not, that's not all, not always true. There's a couple of people that I had to seek out for the book, but mostly the people that keep reoccurring in the book, you know, I, I, I've worked with for a long time and we've influenced each other. So Dr. David, Dr. David Hulse, Dr. Nigel Stevens, Jules, obviously my co-director here, you know, the physios, the osteopaths, you know, we're, we're all finding our way through this together and have been for a long time. Hmm. That was a person, long answer, sorry. Per, well, personally and professionally, because you all are cyclists. You talked about the different doctors who, despite knowing, you know, that some of the heart risk stuff, they still race and everyone's getting older yeah. and pushing the limits. So I guess personally, professionally, but it does seem like the central thing that we're, we're grappling with, which I hadn't, you know, even as a cycling coach too, masters and, you know, adult cyclists hadn't thought through that, you know, this is really the first era, the first generation of where like a lot of us are pushing into this health and performance, well, you know, probably more of the performance thing into our fifties and sixties. And this is novel is, is what you're putting forth. Yeah. And, and that's one of the sort of pillars of the book, Peter, really is that, that this kind of cognizance that we're crash test dummies here, that mm. we're unwittingly or knowingly entering into this grand experiment. What happens when you try and race tune 
a a <clears throat> a body that in most other centuries would be long dead you know because we've we're completely past our evolutionary design life so yeah, that, that is a grand experiment and there were outliers of course all through the centuries all through our ancestors generations where people would exercising moderately into middle age and beyond but not in enough numbers to make it interesting there are aberrations it really is the last two generations and probably just the generation and a half where there's been a switch it's just gone and suddenly you know 40 50 60 doesn't mean sedentary doesn't mean getting old doesn't mean all you can eat cruises it means something else mm -hmm. and that's that's a cultural switch that's gone and nobody really knows what the consequences are Mm -hmm. I happen to believe they're mostly all good, actually. That's mm -hmm. my opinion. But there's not a great evidence base for it. There's an emerging evidence base for it, but it's not a great evidence base. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the book was about trying to... Sorry. I... Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. Like you're saying, now there's such a range of people, whether they're, it's not even tied to like, can you do this as a career or are you the best in the world? It's just you enjoy it. You're 50, 60. You have the means and the time to do it perhaps now. And then you're you're pushing your heart rate, you know, to maximal efforts and pushing the power. And we just don't know, you know, what is the load on the heart? You talk a lot about heart health, but just on on all aspects, right? And as you say, most of the stuff's positive, but there's always these these little like question marks and, and probably some individual variants too that you know are, are good to explore. And, and that's what you do in the book so well. I think I'll try and ask a question about this. Is there through all this research and looking then at the the, especially the heart health seems like that's like the big one. Would you agree? Like that's like the big unknown. You know, there's a lot of these positives, you know, muscle mass, fat mass, you know, metabolism, but it seemed like heart health was the big unknown. Would you agree that that was sort of like the main one in the book? Yeah, I would, Peter. That chapter is twice the length of every other chapter. Okay, good. It is the first, yeah. It's the first chapter that I wrote in the book. And in a sense, it was meant to be the book's calling card. And it mm. came as a response to, conflicting information that was coming out in the media about exercising to middle middle age was fantastic for you and then it was really dangerous for you and then you should be doing hit exercise and then you should be doing you know it's like there was just this kind of morass of information and it, it all seems to contradict each other it doesn't it didn't seem to be consistent mm -hmm. and so i kept seeing this stuff and then we you know, i would talk to my peers here and nigel who was kind enough to do a lecture here and, and we just we were all kind of thinking about this it's like well you know what is the evidence base so that was the that was the book's calling card in a way so i went back to the i went back to the core research and was very fortunate enough to go to to meet Ahmed magali he came and lectured here for us i interviewed Ahmed magali um extensively and then and dr jimmy parry williams um, and again interviewed her extensively talked to her extensively so i, I was going back to the key people that did the research into this into these heart studies and they were personally involved with the athletes the, you know who anonymously called the cohort well take the rabbit ears away these are people these are middle-aged athletes who are you know trying to function at a high level that they are a cohort but they're actually people and personalities and some of them are my client so it really was kind of thinking about that and what actually did the research show and does it mean that we should all be very concerned or were there was there more subtlety in the in the data and where there was any any unknowns, <clears throat> let's call it out. Let's give pe let's pe give people the information that they that they need it. Now, I mean, the criticism I've had from the book from some people is that book is that chapter is overwritten, 
and I, I'm prepared to wear that criticism, actually. I think it probably is overstudied and overwritten, but I didn't want to underwrite it either because, excuse, excuse the un, unintended pun, because, you know, there's too much of that out there, like a tabloidy kind of 150 words, you know. Right, that's how you get in trouble is, yeah, so people die doing cycling. And then it's like, well, I mean, a lot of people live doing cycling too. I think the yeah. phrase you use you know, sort of summarize it was like, where is the bodies, right? Like, where are they? Like, the, we can all probably name someone who's had, you know, arrhythmia or whatever. But, you know, we can also name a lot of people who otherwise are yeah. very healthy. I'm very fortunate to have a host of 70 year old gentlemen that I've grown up, you know, riding with yeah. are still doing great. Right. And so to me, those are the examples to focus on. Completely. And I think that's right. I mean, and the, the where are the bodies thing? You know, I wish that was mine. It's not. It actually comes from the guy that was this heart surgeon for the London Marathon. And, you know, he was the kind of lead surgeon. And some of the people I worked with worked with him and knew him. And it, I think it was a kind of, a, a, you know, a very dry humor whenever he was asked about this. You know, it was like, well, where's the bodies? You know, so mm -hmm. if this is dangerous, why, why are we not seeing piles of middle aged athletes just, you know, um, collapsing on the floor? So, you know, just common sense tells you that it's it's quite subtle you know there's something going on is it dangerous for most people probably not um mm -hmm. but it's it is a very it is a very complex thing right um, it, and and sorry um you use the phrase on the same thread though uh, immoderate and i wanted to ask you like why i don't this could be a brit versus you know canadian or, or something you know you use the phrase immoderate middle-aged men and, and a moderate exercise it, to mean that it's like beyond necessarily like it, it's not moderate i think you know it's beyond what's maybe required for health T talk to me a bit about just that word use because i think there's a, a piece in there maybe around this topic yeah that's very perceptive so our national health system i don't know what your healthcare system is like we have what's called the nhs the national health system and the, the kind of the bland advice that's always given well-meaning by the nhs and you know by these kind of organ health organizations is moderate exercise 150 minutes of moderate exercise now what does moderate mean i mean it's so bland and vanilla and woolly it kind of means nothing so i particularly you know went against the antonym and said well let's throw that out immoderate exercise so forget moderate because no one knows what moderate is anyway you, you know so you default to gentle well let's get rid of gentle and default to you know extreme immoderate you know intemperate if you like exercise so that it was a play on this whole thing we're always told every day 150 minutes of moderate exercise so mm -hmm. i wanted it to kind of just kick that back uh, so you're quite right that is a particularly brit cultural thing the whole moderate exercise yeah and i think those 150 minutes and and how you describe that on the population i think that mirrors us and and canada in a lot of ways yeah yeah, yeah, but I, I guess what you're saying is like we're 150. Most of us joke, you know, that's like a, a Saturday ride. Like that's, you know, you're blown through that. And it, it's maybe even more <laughs> intense than they that's right. intended. Yeah, I've been through my quota this morning. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a, it's a solid Friday. Thanks. <laughs> so I think the other piece then, so there's this training and, and the, you know, we sort of talked about the summary. People can read the, the chapter, I guess, to get more. The other piece I wanted you to just talk a bit towards is this arrhythmias. You know, people get these irregular heartbeats, the fast heartbeats, and those are probably more common in our friend groups that we see. And a lot of times it, it doesn't really, you know, it, they do something, they stop drinking coffee or they do something. But is this, in your opinion, like the arrhythmias and stuff, like what was your, what did your research show as far as, you know, concern around these different heart abnormalities, if, if we can call them that? 
So first off, yeah, I'm I'm not a cardiologist. I'm a bike fitter. So right. you know, I'm coming at this. I'm coming at this with a real amateur interest. I'm not. I'm not a cardiologist. So take everything I say with a pinch of salt. It's of probably course. wrong. Uh, yeah. So first, and this, the second thing to say is that this is very rare in women. And so the book is called The Midlife Cyclist, and it's there's a man and woman on the cover, for, for, which is what I wanted, and there's only a woman on the side spine. So you know, and I try and discuss in every chapter. How things, if there's any differences or how this presents with men or women, I, I talk about it. It's a very boring chapter, chapter three. It's a very boring 20,000 words if you're a, a woman veteran uh, athlete because, you know, it, it doesn't seem they have too many problems. Now, it might be because estrogen bestows, bestows a protective effect. And you're talking about arrhythmias. And I think you're particularly talking about atrial fibrillation or AF. And it may be that estrogen bestows some kind of protective effect there because women just don't seem to have the onset of atrial exercise induced atrial fibrillation that men have. It is one of the more common things. And actually, it's quite, as I understand it, um, Nigel is an atrial fibrillation um, specialist. It's easy. It's relatively easy to treat. Uh, I won't even pretend to understand, but you know, ablation or chemical or both or changing the way you you know, your daily life and function. So so atrial fibrillation is not necessarily something that needs to be scary, but it's interesting how it presents more in women. I think it's five times more. I think it's something like five times more or even more, eight times more in, in men than women. And one of the one of the confounding variables seems to be alcohol. And I sort of flagged that up in the book and went out and then went, I'm just going to put it in there. And I, I, I don't remember if I called it, but I might have called it uh, abstinence makes the heart grow stronger or something. But, you know, there's definitely a link, it seems. I think this has been proven now, subsequent to the book coming out. I think the research has proven this, that there's a link between quite moderate alcohol intake and veteran athletes or, you know, middle-aged athletes and atrial fibrillation. Mm. So that's mm. not, you know, that's not a triangle you want to join, really. And so if you're training really super hard, you're kind of post-40, post-50, post-60, and you drink a lot, you know, that, that is one of the, where's one of the things you can change really quickly and with it, with probably having a, a positive effect, because it seems that alcohol does have a seems to have an effect on the incidence of atrial fibrillation. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because, you know, there's an inflammatory effect. Who knows? I'm sure, you know, people out there listening to your to your podcast will have the answer now and be screaming at the screaming at the. Sure. Yeah, and more is known now. But at the time when I researched the book, it was kind of nudging that way. But the, the research wasn't definitive. The research seems to be clearer now that there there is an issue with alcohol, middle aged athletes in moderate exercise, and the incidence of atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your, your one of your final chapters talks a bit towards this. You know these. I guess, choices, but these other factors, you know, there's the emotional health, there's, I guess, alcohol consumption, there's diet, you know, and sort of these other things that if we are trying to continue to push the performance envelope, as we are fighting, you know, some of these age-related factors, these are the controllable things, right? It's not always fun, you know, it's not always easy, but you sort of put these forward as like, if you're trying to push that envelope, these are are things, right? Like if you want to keep that heart functioning and healthy, as you do these other things, these are controllable factors. I sort of like that because the book sort of starts with this, like, <clears throat> I guess, philosophy of, you know, aging athletes were the first cohort to go through this. And then it finishes with some of these other things, right? Like the, what, what can you do about it? What are the other factors? Yeah. Yeah. And um, sorry. 
Uh, well, I'll try and ask a question. I, I, I was going to jump in there with an with an answer to a question you didn't ask. <laughs> well, I guess when we, when you're looking at that, then you know some of these the emotional health piece seems to be like something that's coming up a lot more in some of the popular books and and even just some of the fitness books. You know, mental tr uh, training, mental training. You know, sports psychology is coming up more, and it does seem like that's especially maybe related to that men women piece. You know, the heart attacks and stress, and because that's really what you're talking about, right? Is how much stress can the body take? And if we keep putting stressors, alcohol, life stress, work stress, sleep stress, dietary stress, like, I guess that's really what you're looking at in that final chapter. Yeah. For yourself, do you, did you find like, as you're getting older, like you mentioned a lot of these things, uh, has there, one of those been complete, like helpful for you? Like one, one of the more, you know, relevant ones for you? Yeah, no, no question. And I had a heart, a heart health scare and Nigel was already a friend and a client and so obviously I went to him and the national health over here was saying that I needed a pacemaker and, uh, you know, which is not necessarily scary, but, you know, it, yeah, it's certainly, it's, it's certainly sort of disarming, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I went to Nigel and we, and he put, undertook loads of tests and we talked about it and he said, well, I think you should make these, these changes. And he listed them for me. Mm -hmm. My wife was sitting next to me. So it's kind of like, okay, then, these changes are going to have to get made. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I made them all and, it was an eye opener, and that was before. This is before I wrote the book, so I, you know, I, you know, I, in a sense, I am living it. And and I think you actually summed it up really nicely. You know, stress is stress, whether it's training stress or work stress or relationship stress or, you know, it's just stress. Your body interprets it the same way in some sense. You've got to think about back to the the what we were talking about before, evolved function. You know, we didn't, we weren't, it, we didn't evolve to function in this environment. We functioned to evolve in a different environment. Mm -hmm. you know where you know we've we evolved to deal with you know stress in a different way and here in this environment the, the environment we're in now there's a there's a propensity to layer stress and you must have it with some of your clients who are really super keen to move on and push on with their performance but they've also got a really stressful job and relationships and all kinds of stuff going on and they're just kind of just layering on like sediment these layers of stress mm -hmm. and not really understanding that the body is having to deal with this stress, you know, with a 250,000 year old genome, you know, where stress is just stress. And, you know, the number of clients I've got who are climbing on, you know, a, you know, on a, maybe on a turbo trainer at 11 o'clock at night to just to get piled in that one more sweet spot session. And actually all their body wants to do is they're already, they're already sleep deprived. They're already kind of had too many coffees that day and they've already had two glasses of wine and they've argued with their spouse and then, hey, they're going to climb on their bike and do an hour sweet spot or FTP. It's mm -hmm. like, and they're intelligent people. If you just kind of said, look, let me just take you off the bike for a second. Let's just have a conversation person to person here. Is this actually what your body's crying out for in this moment, 11 o'clock at night? Mm -hmm. Is it actually what your body wants? And if you had that intelligent conversation, you know, it's, it's not what my body wants. My body wants me to have a, a milky drink, bit of nutmeg scraped on top, and then eight hours sleep is what my body wants. So we'll, yeah. we'll do that then. Why don't you do that then? That's, do you know what I mean? And that, in a way, that chapter eight, the mindful cyclist, is, that, is trying to be that friend that just takes you by the hand and says, you know, this is maybe not the best thing for you to do. And I've needed that, mm -hmm. you know, and I need it now. I need it, I need it now sometimes. So I understand it. But, it, you know, sometimes we're just not, we're not our body's best friends in that moment, Peter. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm not sure I answered the question you asked, but.
No, I, I think that's good as far as the question was good. But that idea of less is can be quite angry. And I find that sometimes with with clients, right? Like you suggest, you know, maybe a little less training and a little less this, and, you know, maybe you don't need the coffee and the alcohol and then just sleep a bit more and it, it'll probably be better off in the end. But it's it's frustrating for, you know, your type A's or your your people who like to really push the envelope, right? Which is most of, you know, that's, I think you're probably describing a lot of people who continue to <laughs> push themselves hard on a bicycle right it's sort of they work hard yeah but yeah so so let me ask you a question sure so, so if you if you think about yourself do, are you someone that performs best early in the morning or late at night so let's look at the two polar extremes there are you somebody who's a your chronotype if you like mm. are you a, a natural lark or you're a natural owl in terms of your your best performance let's, sure. I mean, it could be intellectually but let's Say athletically. I'd say morning person for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We shut down Fine. by like five o'clock. We don't like going outside or doing anything. Yeah. Fine. So how many times have you climbed on the bike or the trainer or running machine, whatever, at nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night? I don't know if I've ever done that. Fine. So you're working to your chronotype. So you're, mm -hmm. you're a coach. So, you know, you one hopes you have the answer. But how many times have your clients done it? Mm -hmm. But they don't know. Mm -hmm what their natural chronotype well, is and it's tough I, I struggle right because a lot of this stuff you know there's like almost this back and forth pull right where like you want to race so you need to train at some point you can't just sleep and go to work right but then there's only you know the only window of time you have and and so it does really get into that i guess philosophical question of you know how do you spend your time and what's changeable and what's possible you know seasons of life i guess you could get into it's it's tricky right like it's some people only have that 7:30 or whatever window for themselves. Sure. So if you so personally, I was a natural owl. Oh. So evening evening criteria was where I performed best as a racer. I'd no had no idea about these things at the time, by the way, of course. Sure. But now looking retrospectively, I was I always did much better in evening races, probably because everybody else was performing like crap. But I would always do great. I would go great in an evening race. So that was my natural chronotype. I'm, now I've had to change my chronotype because of my work-life balance. I have to be up at five and, and at work at seven. And so I've had to change that. So if you're working with your clients, you know, and they're, and they're naturally somebody who's a, is a, is an, is an owl, but they're, you know, they're, they're time to check the time they have available to train is really early in the morning. Well, they, they've got to adapt to that. You know, they've got to find a way to change. So their life actually, you know, so they change their life a bit so they can, they can function at six in the morning and do that session. Mm -hmm. there's no way so a morning time trial when i was you know when i was at my best i was absolutely rubbish and all time trials in the uk are early crack of dawn so i would always be up at six o'clock in the morning and perform dreadfully so well no of course because i didn't go to bed till one in the morning because i'm an owl you know mm -hmm. so you know I, I had my last coffee was at 11 o'clock at night for god's sake yeah. so you know i didn't know anything then um but, you know, thinking these things through with clients now is really interesting and, and helping them think about this is really interesting. And, and the thing is, you know, one of the guys we work with here is a guy called Dr. John Baker. He's not here at the moment, but he's here a lot. And you know, he does all our lactate threshold testing and VO2 testing. And, 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 and he accessed 10 million mile, 10 million kilometers of, da of data for the book for me. And he and I talked a lot. And we concluded that... The amateur clients, his amateur clients that he's coaching, are working harder in terms of stress levels on their body at 50 years of old than his 24-year-old professional athletes. So we're working as a high proportion of our maximum mm -hmm. heart rate 
mm-hmm. than the, the professionals. With you know, those guys are you know are being much more cared for. If you like, they're looking after their bodies in a way that some of us old timers aren't, mm-hmm. and we wonder why things break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's time limited idea that you should now just like cram more intensity into fewer hours or something. And as you say, ignoring that, like the body is older and there's more other stressors as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And of course you get, you get fit overnight. You don't get fit. You know, you, you know, the stress that you give the body, the dose, the stress dose doesn't make, doesn't build strength and fitness. It's, that's the stressor for your body to do that. Mm. And that's done overnight. That's done. And, and to access that, you need to go into, into, you know, you need to go through the levels of sleep and get to kind of slow wave sleep when the growth hormone is released. You know, but you need to go through those levels. If you've drunk a couple of glasses of wine, you won't get to those levels. Mm-hmm. So the body won't the body won't give you the dividends that you're after. Here's a question, sort of shifting gears, but one sure. of the things that comes up a lot with aging, aging athletes is this strength training, right? This seems to be trendy. I said this year it was going to be even bigger for this idea that like everyone should be strength training, even the cyclist. I'm curious, like for you, what, what does that meant? You know, and and you can be honest, I don't know, you know, cyclists are always (laughs) resisted, but what have you been able to do for yourself as far as as introducing strength training into your, your life? Yeah. I'm, I'm not the best advocate here to be honest with you. No, you're real though. That's what I was hoping. Thanks. I do try. And I, you know, I got some ongoing back problems. So I've got to be really careful with resistance training for me. That's a bit more difficult. So I try and kind of think outside of the, problem so my best probably the favorite thing i do other than cycling is paddleboarding because i'm in extension and mm-hmm. cycling's inflection so i'm working against that which is good i put my dog on the boat he's a great big golden retriever he's huge stick him on the on the paddleboard and you know we'll go and do a paddleboard session together and you know i'm not loading as much as i would if i was doing heavy free weights but i can't do that with my back so that's what I can do. And it, it you know, it, it is an antidote to cycling. I'm an extension, not flexion. I'm, you know, so, and I'm, my, the, my working through my feet into the paddleboard, but I'm also working my upper body. So, it, you know, in that way that I'm trying to use it as an antidote. But it, what that doesn't do, of course, is paddleboard. It doesn't offset the sarcopenia in the legs. So sarcopenia, age-related muscle fiber loss. So we talk about it in the book quite a lot. It's it's inescapable. You're going to lose muscle. You're, only, you're born with a finite number of fibers and you lose the fibers as you get older. The only way to offset that is to make the ones you've got left bigger. That's all you've got. That's, the, that's our defense mechanism. So you've got fast twitch, slow twitch, intermediate twitch. And the, the ones you want to target here <clears throat> really is the intermediates and the fast to try and to bulk up. So, and it's possible, but it's hard. But paddleboarding, of course, doesn't help me with that. So really what I should be doing, and this is a bit I don't do, is I should be doing weights on my legs. Again, that presents problems with my back, but I'm being lazy. I could get around that, you know. Yeah. So, and, um, and I think that's that's real, right? Like I, I, I expected that, not that I know you at all, but like it, it, it is the common, like it's a hard thing to introduce later uh, for cyclists, right? You're wired up to like endurance things. You like to move towards, you know, the horizon in your activity. Correct. So yeah, I, I love that. And so it's, it is finding those different things. You talk a little bit about hiking and cross-training, you know, variable surfaces, which it really resonates with, you know, our, our beliefs as well. So talk to me a bit about that. You had a couple of tips around like walking and, and again, just trying to load things, joints, muscles a little bit more. Yeah. And one of the first people I worked with 
25 years ago, maybe more, was an extraordinary physiotherapist who was the clinical director at a kind of sporting physiotherapy practice here in London for balance. At the time, the kind of medical director was a guy called Graham Anderson, a really kind of a, a very influential physiotherapist here, and a lovely guy, had, didn't really wasn't a cyclist, he is now, but at the time, but he kind of just, he and I met and he, he was interested in what we were interested in. And uh, we, we worked with Graham um, for many, many years. And every time that he would, he would introduce new physiotherapists into the practice, he would send them straight over to us for training. It's like, okay, you need to go and say, spend one day a week with the guys at CycleFit until you're, until you, you know, even though they weren't cyclists, he just, it was almost, it was compulsory. You came over to CycleFit and you trained with us one day a week. Uh, and it was brilliant. It was great for us because we were getting this inflow of, you know, really kind of energetic physiotherapists. And actually, that's how we met Nick, the podiatrist. And Mick came over. And so it was just brilliant. He was absolutely right. It was because he could see cycling was an emerging sport. He didn't really understand it that well. He does now. And Graham, go back to your original question. So Graham's whole thing, I mean, he's, an, he's the Olympic, I think he was the Olympic tennis physio. He, he's a guy that goes around all the big tennis tournaments, Wimbledon, all that kind of stuff. He's on the, the tennis tour, or used to be. <clears throat> but... You know, his whole thing is, you know, do what you can do. So if you can't run because you've got bad knees or you, you know, then walk chaotically. But you must, cyclists need chaos in their diet. It, otherwise, you're just, your feet are on these kind of pedals that are going around with these cranks on a bottom bracket. You know, we didn't evolve to do that. That's so unnatural. Mm -hmm. So he, for him, the whole thing about cyclists is you don't have enough chaos in your diet. You need chaos. And that could be, you know, it could be walking over or hiking over rough ground it could be it could be anything but just don't make every single movement you make the mirror image of the last one that's for him for cyclists that's the way of problems and i think he's absolutely right so i put i think i even credited him in the book with it that it was him that you know that influenced me with that and it mm -hmm. stayed with me and you know, so if i've got a cyclist in rehab it's like get some walking poles and, and head off road and walk off road with your walking poles and you might you know you, you don't want to become that kind of walking party of of old people with your walking poles but trust me it won't look or feel like that you know give a cyclist give a cyclist a pair of walking poles and all they want to do is go fast and hard as they can but actually what they're doing is a great deal of good you know mm. walking walking with poles properly is you know 25 percent harder in terms of cardiovascular input metabolic input mm -hmm. and it's great for the body every step is different you're involving your upper body it's great and yeah. so graham really switched me on to that Okay. Yeah. It's big with our cross country skiers for their like dry land training. So if, if folks okay. are looking for more extreme examples of like hill bounding and, and things like this, but they do a lot of just pole walking uh, as well. Have you done it, Peter? A lot. Yeah. My coach growing up for cycling actually was a cross country skier. So we did a lot of cross training again with Canada. Like you just, at some point you can't ride a bicycle. So we tried to, yeah, yeah. We tried to avoid indoor training, you know, as much as we could, obviously you had to do some, but that was the other thing I wanted to hit sort of related to cross training, variability, muscle, this sort of stuff is, is you sort of share my view that indoor training is you need to be a little cautious with it. So tell me a bit about that. You know, what, what, what are the cautions around indoor training? I, yeah, I'm not against indoor training and I think it has its use. I mean, certainly your winters and to a lesser degree our winters, you know, there's times when you it's cycling outside is folly, frankly, you're going to hurt yourself. So I totally get it. But my reservation is athletes, when they're just using it, they're kind of doing 5% on the road and then 95% on a stationary trainer. And the stationary trainer, putting my bike fit hat on for a moment, load tends to load the body in a slightly different way. And you tend to interface with it in a slightly different way because it's abstract. 
So when you're cycling out there in the real world, you've got to interface with this machine and with the terrain and with the environment. You know, take all that away and you start to work with a bike a slightly different way. And that's fine if you're doing it, you know, a couple of times a week as your high intensity training or whatever. But if that's all you're doing, suddenly when you get out on the road, you know, and you've learned, you're, you're, you might be interfacing with the bike the same way and it, it, it's not good, you know, so, or can be, can be, you know, deleterious. So I think it has its place, indoor training. I do, certainly for kind of the high intensity stuff, but it, you, you need to do, in my opinion, you need to do other stuff as well. And, yeah. And, some, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes people get problems on the stationary training. They, they don't get when they go out on the bike. I agree. Because yeah, they're, the, the, they're moving, they're, sorry. Sorry the variability is much lower. Yeah. The, the one phrase I use a lot, this is actually, it's like really central to my coaching philosophy, but the idea that like the indoor trainer is like a batting cage in baseball. I don't know if that resonates. You probably said yeah, yeah. similar, but batting cage in baseball, it's not, it's not actually the game of baseball, right? There isn't all the you know rich elements that go along with the game and in a similar way, like cycling, it, it's one element, but it takes away the visual and it takes away the balance, right? And when you think about a kid learning to ride a bike, you know, there's really only the balance and the, where are you going? Like, look where you're going. And so it, it's really not the thing, right? It, it's maybe a piece, yeah. but it's not the thing. Yeah. That's right. It's abstract. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like with fitting, this is sort of, again, a diversion, but like related to the indoor trainer, then is there, is there a way indoors like that you can try and you said it's not quite the same. So do you correct for that in any way, or do you go outside with people or, or what, what's your strategy there? Or is it sort of like you send them away and see how it goes, you know, after they get the fit indoors? So if I've got a client who's, I'm seeing some issues that I think that, you know, there's some issues on the bike that I'm not comfortable with the way their their technique. Often I'll say, fine, pedal on the on the stationary trainer, but put flat pedals on. And mm. so, you know, you, you're really simplifying your pedaling. You know, you're just working in extension. You're not working your flexion. You know, thinking about evolved function, but, you know, your powerful extension and, and, and the flexion phase is really just to bring the lever system back to where it can. So, you know, sometimes I'll just simplify and then they can have fun with that. They could go on the turbo trainer or the stationary trainer and say, okay, I, actually, it feels a lot better than I thought it was going to feel, you know, mm -hmm. simplifying their pedal stroke. So we, we do lots of things like that, even with pro athletes. Sometimes yeah. someone's got some kind yeah. of, but, you know, their body's adapted around an injury, didn't get properly rehabbed, and suddenly they're doing something funky with the pedaling, you know. Mm. So we just try and reset them by... I, I love that you brought that up because that's like a, a simple constraint. You call that in, again in sort of the coaching terminology. They talk about these ideas of constraints where you could tell me how to pedal. You could describe my foot, you know, you know, pull up now with your hamstring, or you could say, put these flat pedals on your bike and figure it out <laughs> and my body yeah. will adapt. And it's, it's pretty amazing, you know, what the body will solve for itself. So I love yeah. that. That was one of my favorite parts in the book, actually, was just you talking about how the different ways you, you use that, you know, someone's got knee pain or they're you know, new to bicycling or whatever, and just how that was one of the tools in your, your, your toolbox. Yeah, and we often use it diagnostically. We just, you know, if someone's got a problem, you don't know what it's, you don't know what its antecedent is, you don't know where it's coming from, and you just say, okay, so, let, so put some flat pedals on, put your day shoes or your trainers on, just pedal, and then they kind of, often they say, ah, oh, it's all gone, the problem's all gone now. Like, okay, so mm -hmm. let's just, uh, so that's the prescription. <laughs> Go and do some of this for a while, rather than get try and get too advanced and fancy what the diagnosis is and send you for an MRI scan and go and see Dr. David Hulse. Like, okay, do you, do you know what, what? Just do that for a moment. Let's see if that works. Keep it simple. And oftentimes it does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try and have clients, you know, we have fat biking for snow and stuff here and, and it just yep. makes more sense to just wear like your winter boots and not bother with, you know, 
clipless shoes or you end up walking most of the time, honestly, I think it's an excuse yeah. to go hiking in the forest. So I try and yeah. encourage there and commuting and, and just as much as we can get, you know, some people have dirt jumpers to go dirt jumping. So you can edge it in that way. Not everyone, some of the mountain bikers now will split their time between the flat pedals and stuff, but yeah, it just, it strikes me. How do you look at that variability with fitting? You know, if, if you knew that I, as you know, a fairly competent cyclist was switching between, you know, road mountain and flat pedals on my dirt jumper or whatever, like, does that sound good to you or, 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 or do you worry about the mix and position and the variability there? No, I love yeah. it. Mm. That's exactly, I, th I think that's perfect. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of the, you know, with, with the, the older athlete, let's, let's kind of fix you in position with a flexed hip and a flexed spine, you know, bent over this kind of machine and have you just work at 10 hours a, a week, at, you know, maximum heart rate in this kind of crooked position. This one, one exact per perfect position. Yeah, exactly. doesn't sound great. Does it when you describe it like that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we try and gently coax people to do something else or at least think about the position they are adopting on the bike. And, you know, so try not to kind of get just bent into that kind of shape. So I think what you say is great. The whole fat bike thing, boots on, that sounds great to me. And the more you get off and walk with the bike, the better, frankly. It sounds great. Mm -hmm. Upper body, you know, that, you know, Graham Anderson chaos thing. It's all going on there, isn't it? You it know? is. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm I'm envious of that. In our final moments here, you you mentioned uh, this may not be a great f final moments question, but the ph physiological examination of FTP and its importance with respect to midlife. So FTP is a big one. We've done posts and podcasts around it. Everyone's going to be familiar with it. But what is your feeling around? Do you think we we center on that far too much as as midlife cyclists? Yeah, I think we do. I think we made an obsession. And, and to put it lightly, it's, yeah, yeah, and, and it, it, it's a, it's a strange one because it doesn't actually correlate that well to any kind of physio physiological markers. So, in a sense, it's kind of it's too big a bullseye. And what one thinks of one as FTP is it, we wear it like this kind of ratchet. And my FTP is this because I once saw that number. It's mm -hmm. like it are, are you familiar isn't. with like Gollum and uh, Lord of the Rings, like the the single ring, the ring to rule them all? No. Well, Go you don't know. It. You're not a Lord of the Rings guy. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. You're probably better off. Anyhow, this like little Gollum character is very obsessed with a ring and he's like, it's his precious, right? So we've written a few posts in that direction that FTP is like this precious thing that like you're just irrational about at the loss of, you know, friends, family, other aspects of fitness that might matter, your performance in a bicycle race, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And of course, you know, when I was racing, we didn't have FTP. It, was, it wasn't a thing, you know? So all we had was, you know, what we considered to be our sustainable speed. So if you if you did a time trial, a 10-mile time trial, a 25-mile time trial, and a 50-mile time trial, if you were very well conditioned and it was the right time of the season, those speeds should be very similar. The 10-mile time trial's average speed should be the same as 25-mile, which shouldn't be too far adrift from the 50-mile. Now, that, to me, is functional, uh, sustainable power because you, you're, you're using it functionally in the real world. I don't, don't think doing everything you can in your life to see this number appear for 20 minutes once on one day, once in your life, is something you should fixate on it because it doesn't correlate finely enough to phys physiological markers. Therefore, it is almost entirely always going to be wrong and become actually just quite a big band. And so I just don't think it's very useful. Uh, and I don't think it's very useful psychologically to become the only thing you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. You know, what we should be looking at is a much broader base of performance 
around endurance and endurance sport, the ability to endure, because that really does actually key in quite nicely to our evolved function as endurance animals. So, you know, so I think FTP is a strange one. I, I, I didn't, I never had it when I was good enough to look at it. You know, when the number probably was quite respectable, I didn't have it. And, and now the number is depressing. I, I'm probably cognitively confirmation bias. I don't need to know it. So, yeah, I think it's a difficult one because with, with middle-aged athletes either, it's like, it's like, you know, there's no fun in watching that number come down. Trust me. Mm-hmm. And there is going to come a point where it deflects and won't go up anymore. You know, mm-hmm. uh, do you agree? Or I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, some people, as you say, there's probably a, a delicate line there of whether we can handle it psychologically and rationally. And there's probably better ways to go about your, your training, right. And, and set those. And as you say, you, you, lots of people figure, I always use the example of cross-country skiers, like have zero, like they'll maybe have heart rate or, you know, a time up a, a certain climb or something, but then snow is variable and they seem to be the fittest people, right? I always just base off of like, they, they figured it out. They're okay. They do, they cross train most of their year. <laughs> you know, they have heart rate and somehow they're the fittest people, right? The highest. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and if, there's... And if, go ahead. And, and if you think about it in terms of, you know, if you've got a choice, you know, this is a really bad analogy and as a coach, you're probably going to shoot me down, which is fine. But if you can either tune the engine to rev harder or you can build a bigger tank so that, that engine can be fueled for longer it's like well do that one first mm. and then do that one you know so do build the big tank first mm-hmm. and then at the end start thinking about you know making that you know that motor kind of really start to to ping and certainly as a middle-aged athlete i think i believe you're much better off building that really big endurance tank first mm. as a safe as a, as a safety net and then start thinking about maybe kind of tweaking the motor a little bit but it's much easier to do that tw- final tweaking of the motor and making it, you know, perform at, at its peak if you've built this great big endurance tank, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I, I think I agree 100%. Like, I think that metabolic, you know, all the zone two stuff is popular now. And and I think there, it makes a lot of sense. It's probably what a lot of us enjoy ultimately as well is, is that yeah. more all day stuff. And then I think if we're doing some of these practices, you speak about the the strength training, the cross training. I, I really like sort of sprint and some of these, I find with a lot of my in, athletes who have been doing endurance training for a long time, they've never really worked on that under five minutes, certainly under one minute, you know, just sprint you know, you, you've done all these crits in your, your younger years as there, you know, previously. So you have these skills, but I find that they, even just the skill of standing and, and accelerating is missing, which then once we do that, there's actually like a whole world that opens up in the powers and durations beyond, you know, below that, whether that's FTP or that's your all day endurance. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that really makes sense. Yeah. But I had all those years of crits, I just hardwired my body into being, you know, just producing that a lot of power for a very like you mean time trialing you mean like that sort of stuff like you just would go out yeah yeah Yeah. it's not used to me anymore because i'm you know i walk the dog and ride my bike and paddleboard and you know listen to bird song it's not used to me anymore right so so, yeah um so yeah i I think yeah exactly Hmm. We've taken up a lot of your time. I have still a whole thing. We haven't got to your chapter five, which is your specialty, but I think it it, it alone is worth the price of this book because it, it goes through. I, I actually didn't expect it, but it did do what I was you know sort of hoping was this chapter five on bike fitting was sort of, if your neck hurts, here's some things to think about. If your knees hurt, here's some things to think about. And that's sort of the chapter five on bike fitting. That's sort of how that's laid out, right? Yeah. Do you know what about chapter five? It was the last 
Uh, no, it was a penultimate. I didn't write it last. I wrote it last but one chapter. Mm. Do you know what? That was the hardest chapter for me to write. Because it's too general. You don't like it. No, no, because it's when you it's what I know. It's it's really what I know. It's what I spent, you know, most of well, a lot of my working life researching and doing and honing and refining. So to put that all on a chapter of a book was impossible. I mean, I that chapter was the most difficult chapter for me to write. I have to say it's really weird. Mm-hmm. So I am, I'm pleased that you enjoyed enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But it, honestly, it was very difficult for me to write that chapter, considering it's what I know. And I, I didn't have to pick up a reference book at any point there. You know, I, that could come out my head. Mm-hmm. And even then I found it hard to write. So bizarre. Well, and I was going to do with this interview, I was like, we'll, we'll go through like, okay, I have neck pain. What would you look at? But then I was like, I mean, it's in chapter five. Folks can get the the audio book and listen to you go through all these these things. And then if they if they can't solve it in the, with these general things, they can come and see yourself or, or someone like you. Um, yeah. Now you're, you, you mentioned you're, you're working. What is this book too? I, I w- want to finish up here. Just, you know, we'll, we'll put all the links for the book folks to check out CycleFit if you are near or, or can visit the UK. But what's this book too that you're working on? Yeah, so it, it's kind of it's kind of take chapter eight, the mindful cyclist, and and go down that rabbit hole. You know, like what 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 you know what else can we do, and really to understand ourselves, what's preventing us from doing the things that we know to be right. If I tell you that you don't need to ride your bike tonight, it's eleven o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had too much coffee. You know, you're stressed at work. You know but the fact then you get on the bike and do it anyway even if i told you not to what is that what's going on mm-hmm. there so it's much more thinking about what blocks we might have uh, as, for doing so that it's it's more about that what is it that you know neurologically what's going on that puts us on the bike and then won't get us off when we should or it's so it's it's staying in lane in terms of seeking optim and optimizing performance as a balance to life but taking much more of a, of a direction from chapter eight, which is the mindful cyclist and thinking about what's going on, trying to understand ourselves as people and then how that relates to our exercise in a healthy way. And sometimes not, not a healthy way. And I've had both personally. So I, you know, uh, I'm going to be full disclosure here and lay it out there for myself and for other people. I'm interviewing a lot of ex pro athletes, ex pro cyclists who are household names, but also people no one's ever heard of, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a couple of people who you should have heard of, but you didn't for one reason or another, because their life went that way and it could have gone that way. Um, uh, and so it, it's it's not look, looking at myself, but other people as examples and trying to understand what really what makes us function like we do in a good way and sometimes not such a good way. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the next book I'm wrestling with. And it's really it's really fun. It's, it's really fun to think about. I love it. Yeah. And just even all these, you know, cause you said there's all these good practices and in, in, in yourself or the cardiologists in the book say like, I know it's not the healthiest thing, but I, I still do it. And, and you know, you say strength train, but I, I can tell you most cyclists, you know, I bet on that you would, we're going to be not necessarily doing it. Replacing sessions, you know, you don't have to bike five times a week. You can do four and then do a cross train. You know, we don't want to do that. We're just going to ride our bike. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole, whole world without even getting into behavior change and sleep and nutrition. There's, there's a lot there. And, and then what made you take up cycling? I mean, I could took up cycling because I wasn't good at anything else. I mean, in fact, I wasn't good at anything, you know, and, and I, I was one of those kids at school was, I was never really, my best friend at the school was, was best sportsman in the school, best sportsman in the county could do anything. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything, mm-hmm. but put me on a bike and somehow it all kind of worked, you know, and, right. 
that this sort of self-selecting cohort of people, and it's not the same, it's not like that anymore, but, you know, it is a bit like that, you know, like we kind of, we fall out the shaker and it's like, oh, these, these guys are going to be cyclists, you know, and why is that, you know, and really looking at that, uh, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, as you say, the different clients that you have come through, there's, you know, even just you saying that this was the thing I was good at, you know, and then it's the, I think you talk, call them Peter Pan. Like you can see why we all, you know, I, I'm no different, you know, we end up with this, like, well, I would like to preserve this thing that I'm good at as long as I can. Yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, and I, I'm taking it from that kind of that first, you know, why is, why, why get on a bike? And you know, I'm using a couple of household names you know, just because I know them and, you know, wh why do they get on a bike? And it's it's really shocking when you talk to them and you really talk to them and they really open up. It's like why they actually ever got on a bike and what it felt like when they did, what they got from it and how it changed the way they completely lived in the world and the confidence it gave them. And the it's like, it's, it's shocking. It's amazing, you know. And then why would you not want to share that with everybody else who's kind of struggling with stuff? Yeah, well, I, mean, yeah I do, I do, you know. It's beautiful. I appreciate your time so much today, Phil. And again, that's The Midlife Cyclist. I've enjoyed it on Audible, but it's available wherever you get books as well if you want to read it. Anything else that I've forgotten here? Loads. <laughs> I'm old. I can't remember, but almost certainly. Well, folks will have to catch up, get the book read, and then your book two will cover all the things that I've forgotten, I'm sure. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Peter. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.